So let's go ahead and begin talking about this book. It's believed that James was the earliest book written in the New Testament. So like, what came first? Most people believe that it was James. Written somewhere around 45 to 50 AD. There's some differing opinions on that, but that's a, a pretty general conservative approach. Um, it, Josephus tells us that he was, uh, James was martyred in 62 AD, so it's not likely that it was written any time after that. And most believe that it was written even before Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. So I uh, can't nail those down with biblical certainty, but that's what scholarship um, has led us to believe. James um, is the half-brother of Jesus, um, and that's who we believe this James is. James, of course, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah when Jesus was conducting his ministry. Actually, he probably would have been one that said, yeah, our brother's a little crazy. He thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks he can perform miracles and does stuff. But once Jesus rose from the dead, even little brother James couldn't deny that Jesus was the Messiah. And he became a devout follower. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He, we believe, was there in the upper room, the gathering at the day of, the, of Pentecost. Um, he gave his life for his faith that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, here's the interesting thing. James, if you were to look at James, um, his name is actually, in the original language, it's, it's Jacob. And that's kind of odd, isn't it? So when you get to heaven, don't look to talk to James. Ask to speak to Jacob, because nobody's going to know who he is. Um, how did we get to the place where we changed the guy's name? It's like, well, we, we're just going to change your name. So um, we did. Um, how did that happen? Well, if you follow this chart, you can see that there, as it went through the different translations of Scripture, um, started out in Hebrew, Yaakov, and then uh, Yaakobos in Greek, and then to Jacobos in Latin, and then uh, Jacobos was a later form of Latin again. And so Jacobos is like, okay, we just decided to call him James, and that's where it is. But um, there's other places in the New Testament where we translate the same exact name as Jacob. So think of, you know, the patriarch Jacob. Um, so why did they do that? Well, probably just the name became common, and that's what they knew. Others have suggested maybe when it was being translated into English uh, in the King James Bible, the King James Bible, that maybe it was just kind of a nod towards the king and they left it. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But that's, that's what's happened as it went from uh, Hebrew to Greek to Latin to later Latin into English. And so we're just going to call him James because it's too confusing to try and, and, and bring that back. But... Um, Anyway, so James is the guy that we are talking about. He's writing to the 12 tribes. Now, the book of Hebrews is a pastor outside of the land of Israel writing back to believing uh, Jews, believing in Jesus as Messiah in the land. James is in the land, and he's writing to believing Jews that are outside of the land. And so we're going to read there in verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is a, an epistle like Hebrew, Hebrews written primarily to Jewish believers. Not that it does not have incredible benefit to us, but that's just the audience that he was writing to. Probably 
this was those that were scattered. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 8 and then Acts eleven nineteen. That following the martyrdom of Stephen, that the believers in the church there in Jerusalem, and remember there were thousands of them at this time, began to be persecuted and they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And so now this letter goes out to them who have been enduring this kind of persecution. But with that as our introduction, let's just go ahead and, and move right into verse 2, probably the most well-known verse in the book of James. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So we're going to look at six points over the next two weeks. But this is point number one. And the instruction we're given is that in trials, we are to remain joyful. We are to stay in the place of having the attitude of joy. Of joy. Trials are those outward hardships that come to us. It could be sickness. It could be financial difficulty. It could be problems in your business. It could be problems in relationships. It could be social problems. Whatever the trials are that are pressing down upon your life, he says in those trials, various trials, not just one kind of trial, but all kinds of trials, hey, you're to have the attitude of joy. And the, what he says is, Count, count, or consider it. And the word consider here means to engage in the intellectual process. I think that's instructive because sometimes we may read this and we think of joy as an emotion. And so count it all joy. So we sit back and we're like, all right, Lord, give me joy for this trial. And we wait for this emotion of joy to come into our life. And now I've got joy. Okay, now I will be joyful. And we respond at that moment. But that's not what we're commanded to do here. We're commanded to engage in an intellectual process to think and to consider. It's a term that could have been used of an accountant counting up the, you know, you know that day's worth of uh, you know, intake or outgoes and you know, go through the process. And we are called to engage in that process in this way, because you're not going to find it natural that in the midst of a trial and a hardship and a difficulty, something that brings sorrow and grief, you're not going to find that you just immediately emotionally erupt with joy because that's not what you do when bad things happen in life. And yet here we are as the children of God being called to walk in joy in the midst of the trials and the difficulties that come. And not only are we to do this, to have joy, but he adds that little word, all, all joy. Or some of your translations may have the word pure joy. And this is God's desire, is that we as his sons and daughters, that when we face difficulties and trials, that we will have only one attitude in the midst of them, and that will be that overriding joy. We're not going to Obviously, there's going to be other things that are going on, other um, feelings that we have, but they are not going to be the, the thing that takes us down. It's not going to be what defines us in that moment. We're going to have joy. You're like, well, I don't know. I don't know if all, it has to be all joy. Well, let me ask you. It says all joy, pure joy. If I was to hand you a glass of water, how many eyedroppers full of sewage could I put in there before you would not drink it? Like, none. That's the answer. I would not have, I wouldn't take any of it because you want it to be completely pure. And this is what the Lord is asking. It's not that he's saying you're not going to feel 
sorrow or pain or these other things, but that in the midst of them, that we walk out this attitude of joy knowing where it's going to end. I believe the, the, the writer of the Life Application Bible Commentary does a great job of helping us to understand how we should walk this out. So let me read it to you. It says, Joy is a deep sense of well-being that may at the same time embrace sorrow, tears, laughter, anger, pain, and pain. Joy is more a decision than a feeling. It is choosing to live above feelings, but not deny them. It is not intense happiness, although choosing joy sometimes produces happiness. Joy is a particularly Christian response to life since it depends on faith in God's sovereignty. It is quiet and grateful, and it inwardly delights in the goodness of God. So this causes Troy and you, all of us in here, to ask the question, how am I responding in my trials? What is the attitude that I have? Do I have this quiet gratitude of believing and trusting in God to work out something good? Or am I overwhelmed in something else that's uh, another attitude of despair or anger? Well, the Lord would want you, me, us to walk it out in joy. It's like, well, this is so difficult. Yes, there's no question. This is, this is different than anything else the world is called to do, but you have the spirit of the living God dwelling within you. You have almighty God who has promised that everything that's going on in your life is gonna work out for the good. And so we have an advantage. We have a, an experience with our God and so we can walk this out. If we're not walking in joy, then there is room for us to grow. There is room for us to respond differently. The Lord wants you to begin to rejoice. Now, this is interesting because the very thing that's going on in your life may not be the cause of rejoicing. It's sorrow. It's sad. It's, it's maybe even depressing to hear. But there's something that trials are going to do that allow us to step back while not praising God for, you know, the fact that I crashed my car, that I can actually say, I know you're going to do something, even though I've crashed my car. And, and so we can begin to look to the Lord for what he's going to do. And that's what verse 2 leads us to, and it's our next point, is that we are to grow in endurance. And the verse says, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That it produces patience. We should know this. Trials produce a good spiritual outcome. So knowing that, it aids us in rejoicing in the trials. It's not over the specific bad thing that has come to us. It is actually what God is going to do in my life and through my life in the midst of that trial. So I have this knowledge. I have this awareness. Trials come to test us, right? Knowing that the testing of your faith. Trials test our faith. And in the testing, it reveals what kind of quality, what kind of character we have. Think of it like somebody who's working with metal. And they'll take that raw substance that's come from the ground. Maybe it's silver or maybe it's gold. It's valuable. But it has all kinds of other minerals and soil mixed into it. So they throw it into the, the testing pot and they heat it up and it begins to separate. 
And that stuff that rises to the top is called dross. They remove that, and eventually they can have a, they can get to that metal that they want that is truly valuable. But it takes fire. It takes testing. It takes heat to, get to, to separate it. And when we go through trials and we are heated up in life, now all of a sudden things begin to separate. And we can begin to see what is pure. We can begin to see what is impure. You know, when we go through trials and tribulations, we learn something about ourselves. We learn stuff about other people too, don't we? Well, let's stick with ourselves because that's enough problem, right? That's enough problems right there. So you learn something about yourself. I, I think we probably have all prayed something in the midst of a trial. We respond in a negative way, and we have a prayer, oh, Lord, I have backslidden. Forgive me. And I think the Lord's saying, you didn't backslide. You've always been right there. You just didn't know it. I knew it. And now this trial is teaching you and instructing you of exactly where you are. The word um, here the, uh, for testing means to be approved after testing. So the goal of a trial is not to just show you that you're a failure. That's not the goal. It's to, to approve you, that there will be something worked in your life or that you can go through that trial. Isn't it a wonderful thing when you go through that trial that you have failed before and you go through that trial and you're like, hey, I did it right. I actually did respond with joy. I actually... I didn't freak out. I didn't lose my mind. I didn't begin to blame everybody. I actually just said, Lord, I've gone through this before. I know you're going to be faithful. And you, you find that in that testing, you got to see what your faith was like. So trials are the Christian's opportunity to become approved before the Lord. We are often like Peter on the night of the betrayal when the Lord said, hey, somebody's going to deny me. He's like, not me. The rest of these guys, yep, can't trust these guys. But Lord, I'm ready to die, which is a response that you'd want him to have, maybe without the attitude, though. But you would want it to be, Lord, I'm, you would want him to say, well, you know, yeah, you're probably right. I probably will deny you because I've been thinking about it all week long. I mean, that would be a, that'd be a terrible response for him to have. So his response in one sense, of, I have a resolve that nothing's going to move me or shake me from following you is the right one, but he should have then had the associated humility that would have kept him awake rather than sleeping in prayer. To have gone and done the spiritual things necessary to not fall in that way. But he got a life lesson in that trial. He found out where he was in his faith. He thought it was one place, but the trial revealed that it was another no, is that bad? Well, no, it's not. Because it's vital that we understand how we've developed and how we've grown in our walk with the Lord. What are the things that trip me up? What are the things that cause me to despair? I need to get better at trusting in the Lord. And so the trials do that. They reveal. Um, but they, he says here that the testing of your faith produces patience. Or we could use the word endurance. I want endurance in my Christian faith, don't you? Think about it this way. I want to make it to the end. I want to cross the finish line of the Christian faith, you know, with my head up, my chest stretched out, and to finish with endurance. I want to be in the presence of the Lord. I want to live for eternity with him. I want to hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That, and I, I would imagine that's where all of you want to be. 
But he, do you see what we're reading here? Is that trials are going to be the tool that God uses to give us endurance. I mean, if you're a runner, any kind of athlete, you go through things that will test you and will reveal the weakness of your, your abilities, and then you press on and you gain more endurance. And the longer you do it, the stronger you become and the more endurance you have. Could you imagine if God never took us through the paces and then one day just let the bomb of all trials drop on our life? Imagine Abraham on the day when he was told to take his son, his only son Isaac, and go offer him up on Mount Moriah. What if he had never gone through a trial? What if he had never waited for year after year after year for that birth of that child and having come to the conclusion that God is faithful to his word? Or the other trials that he had gone through, some of them he created himself, but nonetheless, they were trials. But he learned so much along the way. He had experiences with God. He had failures, and then he saw the Lord's grace. And so now, when he comes to this moment, he gets up and he grabs his son, and they journey to Mount Moriah. The Lord had prepared him for that moment, and all of us are being prepared. I'm not going to say it's the, the, this is some plan up in heaven where God has every one of your trials picked and planned for you. I, I think that life just brings them. He knows them, but they come. I imagine there are some that he does orchestrate for us. But it doesn't matter what your answer is. He's going to use them all, whether planned or just what life brings. He's going to use them all to produce endurance in us. The reality is this. The world is in a place that God has not designed it to be. It has fallen and it brings pain and heartache. You don't have to be a believer to have a trial. Everybody has trials. Everybody has difficulties. Everybody has the unexpected thing come into their life. So if you're like, well, I don't know about this. I mean, you know, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. Well, I don't want patience and endurance, so I'm just going to bail out. Well, you can walk away from Jesus. Don't recommend it. But you can walk away from Jesus. But I tell you what you can't walk away from. Trials. They're going to be there whether you're in Christ or out of Christ. You're going to be going through trials whether you have drawn near to him or you're far from him. They are going to come into your life. The question is, in the trials that you are going to face in life, do you want creator and almighty God looking over you and, and, and working each one of those to maximize the greatest amount of faith and endurance? Well, if so, then you can look at those trials and say, Lord, thank you that you're using them for something that goes beyond just the heartache and the pain and the misery of what I'm experiencing. Thank you, Lord, that you're doing something that goes above, it goes deeper, it goes wider than what I can see. And one of those things that we are being told here is that it will produce endurance in our life. If we never have experienced endurance or trials, then we will be lacking in endurance will be lacking in patience. And the Lord wants us to have that endurance. He wants us to have that patience. Think of David for a moment, King David, and the trials that he faced and the hardships. Now, one of the most exciting moments of King David's life is when he went out into the Valley of Elah and he was going to fight that 10-foot dude called Goliath, one of the, the giants of the land. 
And this, this teenage boy was going out to fight him. And, and he gets there, and when he says, and he hears Goliath, you know, kind of cursing God and deriding the armies of Israel, he, he gets indignant. He's like, who is this guy? Who, does, who do you think you are to defy the, the armies of God and to speak of him this way? And he couldn't stand the fact that everybody else was letting this guy just, you know, mouth off. And he says, I'll go fight him. To which people respond and said, you prideful little punk. This is what his brothers, sorry, big brothers. You prideful little punk. You've come out here to fight this. He's going to eat you up and spit you out. And he's like, no, because I've gone through trials before. I've had to fight the bear and I've had to fight the lion. Who says that? Who says that at 16? I wonder if like, there was this inordinate amount of bear and lion activity around the flock of David. Because God knew one day he was going to face Goliath. The evil day was going to come. And he had never, if he had never faced the bear or the lion, he would have never been able to say, I'm not worried about this guy. I fought wild animals. This, this guy's nothing. But he had that kind of faith because he had gone through trials. I wonder if he thought, man, I cannot believe the amount of bears in this part of the neighborhood. And over here, there's lions. Everywhere I go, a bear and a lion. I don't know how many it was, but it was enough that he was able to say, I've learned my lessons about fighting these things. I grab him by the beard and I take him out. It's like, really? You do that? Who does that? Well, the sweet psalmist of Israel did that. Little shepherd boy David was learning these lessons. I mean, you could almost hear him in a whiny moment say, Lord, why so many bears? I don't know of any other shepherds that go through the amount of facing the kind of bears I do. It's like, that guy's flock, they never have to deal with that. You know, I always have the lions. I always have the bears. Why, Lord? Oh, I'm training you. I'm giving you endurance because one day you're going to kill a giant and everybody is going to remember this until I set up my kingdom and it's going to give you the faith that you need. You see, you may be looking at your trial and like, why? Because he's building in you endurance. You're like, well, I don't need endurance. Oh, you don't know what's ahead. You don't know what you're going to face. But your, your heavenly father does. And so he's making certain. He's the best trainer, right? He's not allowing unnecessary things to come into your life. And whatever comes into your life, he is going to maximize that so that you are ready to fight that giant the day he shows up. And so this is an important lesson, is that we would grow in endurance. And so the trials. So again, this is what we're rejoicing in, right? That we should have joy, all joy, knowing that that trial is going to produce this. So we respond. And this is, this is where we all need to be. It's like, all right, Lord, you know better, and I'm going to let you do it in my life. Now, in, moving into verse 4, we get the third point. It says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. Now, if you were to take just the last half of that verse, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing, and that was a product that was being sold, every one of you would buy it. You're like, no, I wouldn't. Well, your wife would for you. And you're like, or your roommate. It's like, no, we, we get along great, okay? We'll talk in a month, okay? They're going to be buying this for you, or you're going to be buying it for them, because you're going to want them to be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. 
Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want this perfection, maturity, or to be complete, to lack nothing, that you're ready for every situation in life, whatever ministry opportunity, whatever sad thing comes across your, your life, you are prepared and you are ready to minister in that situation. It's like, well, yeah, I want that. Well, let patience have its perfect work then. So become perfect and complete. The idea of let means that this is something you've got to allow to take place. You have to allow that. But what do we do when we encounter trials or we see them coming? We quickly begin to negotiate and sidestep them. We want to run from them. But really what we ought to do is let it have its work and to not try and run from it. To put it in another, in other terms is don't tamper with the trial. Let it do what God wants it to do in your heart and your life. I mean, let's just say, yeah, but I don't want it. Well, Listen, if that's the way trials worked, I just don't want it and it goes away. We, none of us would be worried about our trials, would we? Well, I don't want it. Okay, we won't let you go through that then. No, you're going to go through that because that, we live in a fallen world. And because living in this fallen world is going to be really bringing very difficult and hard things into your life. And the Lord is saying, I want you ready for those days. I don't want you overwhelmed I don't want you overcome. I don't want you to be fearful when Goliath shows up. I want you to be ready, lacking nothing. And so we allow patience to have its perfect work in our life. We will only arrive at maturity as we face trials and learn from them. Now, sometimes people will say, well, we're studying trials. Oh, no, I'm going to have a bunch of trials now. You know, it's like, I'm not going to pray to grow because every time I pray to grow, I have a trial. Okay, um, you may disagree with me, but I don't think God's like that. I don't think the Lord's like, what did he just say? Try he wants to grow. Give him a trial. You know, it's like, oh, they want to study the book of James. Let's see how smart they are. Throw a bunch of trials on that church. I don't think God is like that in heaven. I think God is... He's looking at life and trials come and trials go and we either coming out of a trial going into a trial, or you're in a trial, right? So we're at one place in life. Now, when we get to heaven, that's not going to be like that, but right now it is. So don't worry about studying the book of James. Don't worry about praying to grow. Don't even be worried about praying to have patience. The Lord is not some kind of, you know, cosmic, you know, killjoy up in heaven that's just waiting for you to pray the wrong prayer and then dump it on you. No, I think he's like, wow. Yes, I do want you to have more endurance. You do need. And so if trials come, they come because either the Lord has orchestrated them, and I do believe he can do that. But I don't know and I don't believe that he's orchestrating every hardship and trial that goes on in life. And so we need to learn to be able to stand fast, to have that endurance, to become perfect. Let it do its thing in your life. Now, it can bring us to tears. It can bring us to our knees. And I don't think that this is like to be in, to have sorrow over the trial is, well, I didn't have joy. No, no, no. The joy is what God's going to do in the trial, okay? It's not the event that transpired. It, it would be wrong if, you know, if, if, you know, one of my children, my wife died, and then I start getting all excited that they died. That, that's, that's weird, 
Okay, that's weird. That's not Christianity as taught in the Bible. But to be in my sorrow and my grief and say, oh, Lord, I know I'm going to have to learn some things about you. And I'm going to have to go receive comfort. And I'm going to have to receive strength that I've not maybe had to tap into in this life before. Lord, for that experience with you, I look forward to that. I don't want to go through this. But in that, I'm going through this. I know what you can do. Even Jesus prayed. He didn't want to go through the trial of the cross, right? But he was resigned to what the Lord wanted to do. Do you want to become perfect and complete and lacking in nothing? Then allow patience, allow, uh, patience to, to be developed in you that comes from the trial. You don't even have to worry about figuring this out. It's just going to happen next week, right? Next month, next year. It's just going to roll your way. All we have to do is have the proper attitude and to receive it in a way that we are able to walk through these trials. I have encountered trials um, before coming to Lynchburg. I have had trials since being in Lynchburg. But I just, I can look back and some of the things I endured, that Rebecca and myself endured, uh, last week, a lot of you weren't here, last, last week was our 29th anniversary, so you got kind of reflective Troy mode right now. But I, you know, I'm thinking back, and if I go back before we got here 29 years prior to that, and I can think of what we went through in the five years of full-time ministry um, um, in Australia and in um, Vista, California, at Calvary Chapel Vista, and probably a little longer than that, actually, um, I can look at the things we went through, and I'm glad I went through them. I'm glad I went through the things I went through. I'm glad I went through the trials. I'm glad I even encountered the sin of some people um, against us because it readied me. It prepared me for the things that I would face and I would go through. Now, listen, not like I arrived after six years of walking with Jesus. I'm still going through that process. But I, it's, it's an easy moment for me. It's like a, a point in our life where things changed. And I can look back and I say, oh, yeah, that hurt and that pain, you know, that I in, went through. Those, those times of, of, of not seeing the fruitfulness of ministry that I wanted to see and prayed to see. And we never really got to see it on the level that we wanted to. And went through that whole thing of learning to be content in the Lord. It was so beneficial. Now, if you're here now, you're like, what are you talking about? It's a big church. Yeah, now it is. It was not like, this has not been a big church. Many of you will say, well, I just don't know if I feel comfortable in a big church. I'm like, yeah, me either. I don't know. I'm still figuring this out. So that, that's not the way we were. We were a small church for a really, like decades, okay? Over two decades, a small church. And I, what I learned in those five or six years of ministry before I got here, I, we needed for those years. And now we can sit back and we can see what the Lord is doing. And there's other things that God has worked into our life for, for other challenges. But see, that's how God works, right? He, he stores in our heart, our mind, and our life the trials that we're going to need. I mean, a lot, of you, a lot of young people in here, a lot of single people in here. And, and the things you're going through right now, it's going to prepare you to be a mom. It's going to prepare you to be a dad. It's going to prepare you to be a spouse. It's going to prepare you to be a, a good servant in, in the local church that when you've graduated and you go and find your home church and you settle down, you're going to be prepared. God's teaching you all those things right now. So we don't want to kick against it. We don't want to run against it. You want to embrace it. 
And by the way, what happens when you fail a test? You get in trouble. No. What happens when you fail a test? You got to take it over. So these lessons that God is teaching you, learn them well. Embrace them. You're not rejoicing over the, the bad thing that happened. You're rejoicing over what God's going to do. Is that, hopefully that's a clear distinction for all of us to see. So this is what the Lord wants us to know about trials, is that we should be joyful. We, he wants us to grow in endurance, and he wants us to become perfect and complete, and trials are the way. Now, in the next, next week, we'll talk about point number four, that we need to pray for wisdom in the trial, um, that we need to not doubt in the trial, and that we need to stay focused on eternity in the trial. So we'll pick up those next three points. But now we're going to close out our time here with sharing in communion. And, of course, communion reminds us of the sufferings of Jesus, his trial, the vexing of his soul, as he says, as we read, unto death. It's the a, it's a trial that he prayed, Lord, if there's any other way for man to be redeemed other than me going through this trial, then let this cup pass from me. But he drank that cup. So while we eat and we drink, we eat the bread and we drink the, the juice, remembering his broken body and his spilled blood, the whole scene reminds us of how he endured a trial, which becomes instructive for us, right? He is, we're to be like Jesus in all things. And so as we sing through this song, as the communion elements are being passed out, allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you. This is how my son was. This is how your Savior was working and moving. Allow the, the Lord to teach you and then apply them to your own heart. And maybe you're, you're looking like, man, I've not been doing so well in this trial. That's all right. That's all right. You know where you are now. You know exactly where you are. And it's, it's where you were before the trial started, but now you know. No condemnation, okay? You don't, don't beat yourself up. Just say, all right, Lord, I, I, I do want to respond in joy. And Lord, I do want to have more endurance. And Lord, yeah, make me, make me mature. Make me ready for any good work that I'm ready to face the Goliath when it comes. He'd be delighted to de develop these characteristics into your life. Let's pray together. Father, your word is good. It is true. We want to receive, Lord. We want to be nourished by every word, every letter of the scriptures that teaches us and instructs us. Lord, we thank you that you don't leave us alone in our trials, but that you are with us and that you are helping us. Thank you, Lord, that you care enough about the end of our faith, that you are you're following our life day by day, hour by hour, ready to work in any and every circumstance we go through. Lord, thank you for that kind of loving, attentive care. We want to be those that, Lord, we do shine brightly in the midst of the storm. We want to stand fast. And so, Lord, give us strength. Give us encouragement.